Well, it is good to see you folks this uh, Lord's Day morning. And uh, let me encourage you to turn, if you would, to uh, the book of 1 John, chapter 1. 1 John, uh, chapter 1. And um, just to prepare our thinking, we'll, we'll read verses 1 through 10 of, uh, of 1 John, uh, chapter 1. And um, we, uh, we extend our sympathies to Kim Balmadir this morning. Her, her mother, Anne Orth, passed away on Thursday, so we'll be praying for her. Good to see you this morning, Kim. So, First um, John chapter 1 and verse 1. Um, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy or your joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And let us pray. Father, this morning we we thank you so much that we can come before a God that is glorious and a God that is pure, a God that is holy. We thank you we can begin this day by uh, fellowshipping with one another, and we, we thank you for um, the preciousness of the fellowship and the joy that we, we have in the person of Christ. We, we thank you for our, our sister in Christ, Kim, and uh, pray that you might be pleased to, to comfort her own soul these, these moments in this day with uh, the precious comfort that you alone are able to give. We thank you for her and, and pray you administer your grace to her. Father, as we collectively, as, as we look at your word and as we look at this theme before us, I would pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. And I, I pray that it would be truly helpful to our thinking process as we would seek as believers in Christ to, uh, to bring honor and glory to thee. So I, I pray that you would direct us and, and you would help us. And I would pray for your help during these moments together. I pray it would bring glory to thee. And I I would ask that it would be helpful to us and, and just to increase our own love for Christ, our devotedness to him. So uh, for your honor and your glory, we pray that you would just bless our time together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, so far um, in this study, we've considered the first the four or five paragraphs um, of the fall of man of sin and the punishment thereof. Um, and paragraph one especially deals with the, the circumstances of the fall. Uh, paragraph two, the consequences of the fall, in particular for Adam and Eve. 
And then paragraph three and four, the consequences of the fall for their posterity, that is those who are descended from Adam and Eve. And just by kind of brief review before we get into the notes this morning, with regard to the consequences of the fall for uh, Adam and Eve themselves, um, we noticed that one of the main things we tried to emphasize is they lost the, the benefits of the gracious presence of God, um, which is really the great tragedy of the fall. They, they lost um, communion with God as a source of joy and happiness and peace. Um, by this sin, they fell from their righteousness and communion with God. And also, they incurred the penalty which a disobedience to God brought forth and so became dead in sin. And then also they experienced a, a defilement which uh, extended to the, the totality of their being. And as Robert Shaw put it, um, they became wholly corrupted in all the faculties of their souls. And then in paragraph uh, 3 and 4, emphasizes the consequences of the fall for their posterity. First of all, for them in particular, and then for their posterity. Uh, and, and here what we emphasized is there was a, a, a restriction uh, which excludes, the restriction is the excluding of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the way the, the confession puts it, he did not descend from Adam by, by ordinary generation. He was born of a virgin. Uh, he did not have a sin nature. And that's uh, critical, of course, for our understanding. The atonement had to be a, a lamb uh, without blemish. He had to be unstained in that sense. Um, and then we looked at uh, universal corruption and then um, the idea that uh, Adam's sin was imputed, the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to all of, of those, uh, all the human race. Um, uh, the guilt of Adam's sin, sin is regarded by God as belonging to all. Uh, he is our federal head. And the, this morning we're coming to paragraph 5 that emphasizes the consequence of the fall for believers. The, the consequence of the fall for Christian believers. So um, this is immediately very practical and very applicable to us. Um, I, I, I think it helps us to understand. When, when we began, I indicated this whole study helps us to understand history and why history is like it is and why mankind is like they are. And then it helps us to understand the gospel and why it is, uh, the extent of the fall, why it is that God has to work in such a profound way. But, but this is particularly applicable to us. It helps us to understand ourselves, that is, as, as Christian believers, and, and why we are the way we are as Christian, um, Christian believers and those who love Christ and, and want to please him. Um, it's really quite amazing in one sense because there's not one person in this room. Um, you never want to sin again. You never want to say an unkind word again. You never want to have to go to 1 John 1, 9 again. But you might feel at times like, this is my life verse if we confess our sins. But the fact is, we just come back to it over and over again. We, we want to be completely sanctified, completely holy, completely like Christ. But none of us are. And, and this helps us to understand why we are the way we are, and also a little some help in, in how you respond to that, how do you, the, the bearing that has on the living of the Christian life. So it helps us to understand really who we are as those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and the fact that there is still indwelling sin. So it's very helpful uh, from that perspective. So it's the, care of our, uh, the character of our condition as saved people. 
and it reveals something that, that we can do about it. Um, I mean, there's other things, obviously, we, we can do in other areas. We can pray and should pray for the condition of our culture, but you, you can't. It's right to pray, but you can't change other people. Um, and there's other times when we do need to go to a brother or sister in Christ, uh, Galatians chapter 6, 1, you know, you are spiritual, restore a brother. So there's times when that's the right thing to do. But 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 this is this is it. This is really what we have to deal with on a regular basis. It's it's dealing with our, ourselves, and this is the central ongoing concern of the the Christian life. Um, and, and and really, as I indicated, it's the, it's the fact and the nature of it's the fact, the nature and the effects of indwelling sin. So the New Testament indicates um, that from a Christian perspective. Um, one not only as a Christian can sin, but even in some scandalous ways. You might turn to First Corinthians chapter five, verses one and two. This would just be one example. There are others of that. At least one is a professing Christian. First uh, Corinthians five one and two. Not only is there remaining sin, but it can show itself in, in scandalous ways. In First Corinthians five verses one and two, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles as someone has his father's wife. You become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. In your notes here, I think Sam Waldron had a helpful paragraph. Let me just, kind of, let me just lead up to it. Um, the paragraph itself reads like this, paragraph um, five. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. And just a reminder from the catechism, what is sin? Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. First uh, John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Good, clear, short definition of sin. It's lawlessness. And, and Waldron's point, I think, is, is helpful. He says a specific point of the paragraph is, however, that the corruptions of believers are sinful. This is probably asserted as against those known in Puritan times as antinomians, one of their traits was, was so to emphasize grace and so to interpret the doctrine of justification as to deny that Christians sinned or had a sinful nature. Okay, so it's kind of two main headings this morning. We'll look at um, some scriptural support for this particular doctrine and then some of the implications for the living of our Christian life. So in the first place, um, I want to give you what I think is some pretty clear scriptural support um, the first one, we'll spend just a little bit more time with this one. 1 John 1, uh, you, you might still, no, you're not, you're in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say, and, and notice the repetition of the term we here. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Um, and, and the reason, if you go back, if you would again, to, to 1 John uh, chapter 1, and um, I, I just want to draw your attention to not the fact of these verses that I just read, but the location of these verses is very important because you notice back in verse um, 
4, one of the purposes for writing the book, well, verses 3 and 4, one of the purposes for writing the book is uh, fellowship and joy. We have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So at least two of the purposes of the book are for fellowship and that we might have joy. And it might seem a little bit incongruous then all of a sudden for John to jump into the issue of sin. And once you get to verse 5, um, excuse me, verse 8, the next five verses, he mentions sin in every single verse. So it may, it may seem to our mind like there's kind of, I thought we were talking about fellowship, and I thought we were talking about joy. Well, I, I, one conclusion is that to have fellowship and to have joy, you have to understand the character of sin, and you have to understand how to respond to it as a, as a Christian believer. Um, so that, that discussion may not seem immediately appropriate, but it is. Uh, verse 8 is, is a general statement. It's kind of the perception which a, a Christian has of their condition. Um, if we say that we have no sin, if we, if we believe, if one believes that is their condition. Uh, Stephen Smalley, who's written a helpful commentary in First John, writes, To have sin is the equivalent of possessing a sinful character or disposition, Another put it like this, sin is, again, in the singular and refers to the inherited principle of sin or self-centeredness. So the focus of verse 8 is a sinful condition, the sinful condition. And then uh, the focus of verse 9 and 10 is the acts that emanate from that condition um, and, or verify the reality of our sin, sinful condition. One older writer wrote, the sin is the principle um, of which sinful acts are the several manifestations. Um, Smalley wrote, the result of the heretical claim to sinlessness is described in two parallel phrases. So, in other words, if somebody says, we have no sin, or I have no sin, if I'm articulating that that, that is my condition, then two other things are true. Number one, we're deceiving ourselves. The one who, who says that is deceiving themselves. What do we say about someone who says they have no sin? They are in denial. They are deceiving themselves. Uh, in the original, um, the term themselves comes before the deceiving. So Smalley's comment here um, on the significance of the grammar is it suggests there's a deliberate refusal to face, to face the facts. Um, to deny that human nature is sinful, it's, it's a practice in self-deception. And, and John is concerned about that concept. You'll notice in verse 26 of chapter 2, these things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Again, in chapter 3 and verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Um, and, and the second result, the, the one who, who says they have no sin, number one, they're deceiving themselves. Number two, the truth is not in us, or the truth is not in them. That's the, the second fact. Um, one commentator wrote, not, not only do we fail to do the truth, verse 6, we are void of it, for if it did indwell, excuse me, for if it did indwell us, we should inevitably be aware of our sinfulness. You're aware of our Lord's um, statement, John 14, 6, where Jesus says he's the way and, and the truth and, and the life. And the reason that someone would say this, therefore, is because they don't have the truth. They, they don't have the truth. If they had the truth, they wouldn't say this. The, the reason is because the, the truth reveals their true character. But uh, I. Howard Marshall, I think, is helpful. He says, to John, it was self-evident that these men were sinners. His reply to them is simply that they are deceiving themselves 
and the truth is not in them. This doesn't mean simply that they are telling a lie, but they have no share in the divine reality despite their claims to the contrary. He says there is a certain paradox in this statement. The, the converse is that if we do say we are sinners, the truth is in us. The resolution of the paradox is that to admit our sin is to face up to the reality instead of pretending. And it is as we confess our sin that it is cleansed and no longer stands against us. So scriptural support, one would be 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. Another way, and you might turn to this just for a moment, James chapter 3 and verse 2. Scriptural support for the idea that we still have sin. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you you will incur a stricter judgment, or your version may say greater condemnation. And then verse 2 says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. I want to read that first verse because I got a helpful quote here from Robert Johnstone, and he makes reference to condemnation. He's referring to in in verse 1, where it says that as such we shall occur a stricter judgment. And I think it's the King James where the term condemnation is probably used. He says, the ground here pointed to by James for his assertion of the uh, of the risk of condemnation is one which will be recognized as valid by all who either believe the Bible or know themselves. A man who counts himself sinless uh, simply illustrates the deceitfulness of his own heart. So he or she is deceiving their own, their own if they think that way. And just some other text here. This is this is from the cited in the Westminster Confession of Faith in this connection, but Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 9, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Well, anybody can say it, it's just not true. But um, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20, um, indeed there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And then especially the first part of 1 Kings eight forty six. When they sin against thee, and this is in the parentheses, for there is no man who does not sin. That's the part of the verse that's applicable for us. For there is no man who does not sin. So there's some scriptural substantiation for the reality of, of remaining sin. I would put Romans 7 in that category as well, where Paul talks about the struggle that he has with ongoing sin. <clears throat> then, okay, now what are the implications of that for, for knowing ourselves? What are the implications of that for you and I as Christian believers? Well, number one, it, it guards against perfectionism. And, and Waldron, again, I think has a good statement here. He says it shows that the standard of Christian behavior it remains perfection, yet no Christian attains that standard in this life. Uh, this guards the humble Christian against the bondage of feeling that because he still struggles with sin, He's a second-class Christian, or perhaps no Christian at all. And this is where um, Christian biographies are really helpful. I had a one, one journal that I read quite a bit is David Brainerd, and he, he can kind of maybe go over the, over the ledge a little bit at times, but nevertheless, it's just very helpful because you can just see how he feels the reality of remaining sin in his life. Hebrews chapter 11 is very helpful with respect to that also, isn't it? Because it lists a lot of people that are... Um, you know, they're because they're faithful, but you look at, read about it in the Old Testament, and you see that they weren't perfect. Sometimes I wonder, how did Samson even get in there, you know? But he is. So anyway, 
Um, so it, it guards against perfectionism. And I want to be careful here. Perfection, perfectionism is the goal. I mean, that is the goal, but we're not going to get there in, in this life. Secondly, it, it, does, it promotes responsibility and peace. It promotes responsibility. The confession points out that this corruption of nature, it's truly sin. It's a lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And, and, and we live in a time, I, I think, when people don't want to really call sin, sin. This is an interesting quote here. It's from Carl Menninger. He was a, actually a psychiatrist in the last century, but I just thought his words were uh, applicable then and applicable now. He says, in all the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, one misses any mention of sin, a word which used to be a veritable watchword of the prophets. It was once... It was, it was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely if ever heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in all our troubles? Sin with an eye in the middle? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know. Tares are being sown in the wheat field at night. But is no one responsible, no one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression, we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings. But has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? Well, our answer is it's still here. And it needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be dealt with. Now, conversely, a Christian, when we sin, a Christian is bothered by that. We'll get to this, but we know what to, to do about it that will result in peace and joy. No, number three, um, it gives Christians re remaining sin. It gives us the rationale for avoiding situations that lead to sin. Uh, it gives us the rationale for um, avoiding situations that lead to sin. Here's a couple of attacks that, that apply to this. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Second uh, John 2.19 says, Therefore the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his. And let everyone that names the name of, the, of, of Christ depart from evil. Uh, why should you abstain from the appearance of all evil? Well, the answer is because of our remaining condition. So it just kind of intensifies the applicability of these uh, sorts of verses. Uh, Jonathan Edwards in a discourse called Temptation and Deliverance. It's on Joseph's great temptation and deliverance. He points out that uh, what, what influenced Joseph more than anything was the fear of sinning against God. And he points out that, the, that he left Potiphar's wife as he would have done from one going to assassinate him. He escaped for, as for his life. And the, the doctrine he derives from that, therefore from the, uh, these words, I shall observe that it is our duty, and uh, not only, excuse me, not only to avoid those things that are in themselves sinful, but also as far as may be those things that lead and expose to sin. And he goes on to say this, Joseph was sensible. He had naturally a corrupt heart that tended to betray him to sin. And then he says, inasmuch as he was exposed to sin, in, in that house, he fled out of it with as much haste as if it had been on fire or full of enemies who stood ready with drawn swords to stab him to the very heart. And so we might regard certain situations or certain people or certain influences, and they are to be avoided, just not only because they are, are, are not necessarily in and of themselves sinful, but they will lead to sin. Uh, Proverbs fourteen sixteen: a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil. A fool is arrogant and careless. He's not thinking about these potential influences. 
Proverbs 19, 16, he who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. So there's a spirituality about this. The godly man or woman is always thinking about the influence of this course of action or that course of action. Edwards, maybe it's from the part of the country that he was from, he uses the example of being careful, how people are careful about walking on ice when it's too thin. And um, it's not, well, I guess that could be a problem around here, but it's not a good thing to walk on ice when it's thin. And he's saying the same, he makes the same point with spiritually speaking. You have to be careful about the situations you expose yourself to for the safety of your own soul. Well, then, um, in the fourth place, it provides a motivation for making the mortification of sin a priority for every believer. It, this provides motivation for making the mortification of sin a priority for every believer. Uh, you might turn to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, just a, a text that is helpful here. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. And um, let's see, if we, would, you, would you mind raising your hand if you have... Like, do anybody have an ESV Bible with you this morning, ESV version? Okay, Mark, would you just mind reading Colossians 3.5 in the ESV? The reason I say that is because I love the New American Standard Bible, but here's one case where I think that the ESV is better. So if you wouldn't mind reading this, brother. Okay, Colossians 3.5? Correct, yeah. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Is that the one you're thinking? That's the one. And really, yeah, and it's really that, that first phrase. Thank you, brother. That, yeah, put to death. That's the idea. When you, mortification is the idea of putting to death sin. And Colossians 3 5, I think, is a, is a great verse with respect to that. Um, uh, John Owen wrote, and that, this is in your notes, John Owen wrote that the life, vigor, and comfort of our spiritual life depend much on our mortification of sin. And he writes, every unmortified sin will certainly do two things. Number one, it weakens the soul and deprives it of its strength. When David had for a while harbored an unmortified lust in his heart, it broke all his bones and left him no spiritual strength. Hence he complains that he was sick, weak, wounded, and faint. There is, saith he, no soundness in me. I am feeble and sore broken. Yea, I, I cannot so much as look up. Uh, Owen writes, it, it untunes and unframes the heart itself by entangling its affections. It diverts the heart from the spiritual frame that is required for vigorous communion with God. And then the second thing he indicates that it does, as sin weakens, so it darkens the soul. It is a cloud, a thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. It takes away all sense of the privilege of our adoption. So the idea, when you think of mortifying sin, you think of a negative thing, but it, which it is, but it has positive results, and Owen does such a great job of, of bringing them out. And there's one final thought here. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 26, and then verse 41, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41, realizing our true condition. What it does, it provides motivation for applying Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41. It's along the same lines of what we've been thinking here. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus says, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The, the term watch here is weighty. 
Um, it's in the imperative. It's present tense, continued. It's the idea of being alert, being awake, paying attention to. Um, so, okay. Um, let's pray, shall we? Father, I thank you. <clears throat> thank you for the time together this morning. And we, we thank you that you have been, been pleased to work in our souls and, and bring us from darkness to light. And we, we thank you for the, the, the glory of communion with the person of Christ. We thank you for the privilege we have of worshiping you. And we, we thank you that you have not left us in, in the dark about our spiritual condition and about how we should respond to that. So I, I pray the effect of these considerations this morning would truly be for the good of our souls that, that we each one would increasingly know what it means to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We would know what it means to rejoice in the Lord. We would know increasingly what it means to have and experience the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. So I, I pray that the result of being here together, that you would just give us wisdom and insight in, in applying what we have considered and, and that it would be for the good of our own souls. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts for morning worship. We ask that our, our fellowship would be precious and sweet and edifying, and that you would um, bless our time together in, in morning worship. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.